The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Hey, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Eastside Neighborhood Organization's 2022 Candidate Forum. Tonight, we've got um, three different groups in particular, the school board, the judges, and the city council. So each group is going to have 30 minutes, and we are going to ask a number of questions based on how many of the candidates are here tonight. And we will be giving everybody an opening statement, a closing statement, And then if the crowd has questions, we'll alternate between pre-written questions and what the crowd would like to ask. And I just want to thank all of the candidates who have come out tonight, all of the people that are here in attendance to uh, ask questions, and all of you who are taking your time to watch the event tonight. You're participating in our democracy, and we can't ask for anything more than that. Um, Go out and vote. We've got till November 8th. You can register up until November 8th. Educate yourself, vote for somebody, and we'll hold them accountable together. So with so many members here, and we've got seven uh, pre-questions, uh, I'm going to just pick uh, two questions to ask each of you, and we should be able to make it through the time limit pretty close. And each of you also have a two-minute opening statement and a two-minute closing statement. Did anybody prepare that? We'll just wing it. Huh? We'll wing it. <laughs> All right, then I'm going to cut it to one minute. Good. Are you okay with that? So everybody has one minute for the first opening. And then in the closing, are you okay with one minute? Sure. All right. Everyone's happy because they can participate in democracy and go first. So, so I'm going to say, uh, I say his timer. Rick Wendorf, I'm right. We're going nice to, to meet you. Nice we have 30 seconds left, the yellow light, and then the time's up to the red light. I've been telling everybody, you'll show grace and when you turn the red light on, but I will just interrupt. Okay. So I want you to stay the nice guy here. Um, so I'm going to just go in order of how we sort of had it on here, and I'm going to start with you, Rosalind, if that's okay. That's okay. And you have one minute for an opening statement. My name is Rosalind Williams. I currently work for the state of Michigan. However, I chose to run for school board A because I am a parent. I've actually been in the schools for several years as a volunteer, and after the pandemic going back in, I realized that there needs to be more collaboration with the family, the child, and the educators, but the educators also need support, as well as the community needs to be a support with the schools and the families, and so that's why I chose to run for school board. All right, thank you. Thank you. Um, Next up, we will have uh, Caitlin Kavanaugh. Hi, everyone. My name is Kate Kavanaugh. I am a tenured professor at Michigan State University, where I'm a developmental psychologist. So I study how kids grow and change from childhood to adulthood. Specifically, I study how to make child-serving systems, which means the juvenile justice system, the child welfare system, the education system, more supportive of youth developmental needs and more equitable. Um, I have about 10 years of policy experience. My first job 
uh, was as a staffer in the European Union Parliament. And since moving to Michigan, I have been the research advisor both for MAFCA, which is a state-level juvenile justice and child welfare organization, as well as for uh, Ingham County. I'm the, I'm the primary research advisor for Ingham County's 30th Circuit Court. I was appointed to the Board of Education in uh, April of this year to fill a vacancy. And I'm here today to uh, earn your vote by telling you more about myself. Thank you. My, I get the plane. My <laughs> name is Kurt I graduated from Lansing Eastern in 1998. I was a certified bad kid in Lansing. I went to five elementaries here and had the privilege of going to all four middle schools as well um, for my behavior. But caught a lucky break. I graduated from Lansing Eastern in 1998. I helped uh, start and get a small mortgage company going in Detroit, Michigan that did pretty well, changed my life, uh, lived in Florida for a bunch of years, and then my sister unfortunately passed away. We came back to Michigan and got reinvolved in the school system and realized it had changed since I had been here 20 some years ago. And it wasn't the same system that was gonna propel somebody through life like it did for me. And so uh, I'm the universal big brother for a lot of these kids. I give all the food at two-a-days for all three high school football programs. Uh, my sister's a principal here. My cousin Danny's a principal at Sexton, and so uh, they just kept twisting my arm saying, hey, all these kids look up to you anyways. You're making an impact that sometimes educators and people can't make run for the board. I'd love your vote. Ryan. Okay, I'm Ryan Smith, and I'm running for the school board. <clears throat> After the last month of nonstop questionnaires, it's uh, really refreshing to actually be able to uh, be in front of a crowd of where you can actually understand what we're saying. Uh, <laughs> Now, one bad thing about questionnaires is, first of all, you don't even know if we wrote them. Uh, number two is you don't really understand the, the, the passion and the understanding that people have for the issues and, and the positions. So to be able to look at all of you in the eye tonight, I hope you'll understand more about me as the night progresses and what I hope that we can all do as a community to make sure that Lansing School District is a better place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Last but not least, Rick. Hello, I'm Rick Wendorf and I'm running for the Lansing School Board District. I'm a 32-year retired teacher. I taught special ed, music, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, junior high. And, uh, and I sit on the LEAF board here. I sit on the Promise board. And I'm the, the uh, vice chair for McLaren, the new hospital. And I retire from that in, in December. Allegedly. Yes, I'm so I'm excited. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm running for the board because as an educator, I would like for our students to be taught um, how to think, not what to think. And I feel that we have had that, uh, has been the, the mantra that we have missed for so long. And being a former educator, I taught my children to have their own mind and not follow what Mr. Wendorf did, but for them to think on their own so that they could get out and make a, a, a wise, educated decision. And I'm hoping that uh, I can earn your vote. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now, um, getting into the questions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of go backwards. Or I'm going to actually go backwards. <laughs> so I'm going to start with you, uh, Rick. Oh, okay. And ask you my first question, which is a two-part question, and then I'm going to go to you, Ryan. The other three, you will not be answering this question, okay? So the question is two-part. One is basically the, 
the teachers of the Lansing School District, I think we all know, have a low morale. They are a lot of positions to fill. And it comes down in a lot of ways to salary. And they see what happened with the principals, and that's frustrated them. And we've got the safety concerns that are within the classrooms. First part of the question, should the school board intervene with salaries for the teachers to preempt any mass kind of exodus? And second of all, who's responsible for the safety within the building? Do you want me to answer number one or number two? Both. I will. And you have three I, minutes. I, I, speaking right here from the heart, being an educator, I remember so often that uh, what brought me to Lansing way back in 1922 was the salary. And it was because um, we, back then, um, I taught in Eaton Rapids and Charlotte, and um, their salaries weren't that great. But once I got into Lansing and I started uh, making 10,000 more than what I did in these other places, um, that didn't make me a better educator. What made me a better educator was having the love for my students. It, the money is important, but this is a calling. It's no different than being in, going into the ministry or anything like that. This is a calling, and you have got to have passion for these students. And you have to have passion for the families. Because if the students are suffering, nine times out of ten, the family is suffering. But what we need to do for uh, the salary is we've got to make comparable. We've got to be, um, you know, teachers are one of the few people that uh, have to be certified all the time and, and go to school. And, and get these um, documents uh, all the time. I mean, it's just never ending. It's just never ending, as does our, our uh, administrators. But it's very important for us to, as a, as a school board, to step in and to make sure we are offering our teachers the absolute best. Because if we're giving them the best, they're going to give their best. And the second part about the safety. I'm glad you asked me that because uh, I'm going to tell you, I taught in all these schools and I can't tell you how many times I was in a lockdown and I remember I was at Wainwright one year and we were having a shooting because we had a gentleman that his brother uh, was murdered by this other family who and both families attended Wainwright um, what I did is Wainwright is a big u-shape and um, my principal um, God bless her soul didn't wasn't able to get out there and do what needed to be done Ironically, I was the only man in the, in the building at that time, and I felt it was my duty to go around and make sure that the safety was, was there for the students. And, you know, and I thought, as, as, this, as this man was going around the building, I, I was praying, and I thought, you know what, if I, get, if I go, if I have to go for, for somebody, I'd want to go for my students. And I was like that. It happened up here at Pattengill. We were lucky. We had, when the shooting happened over here at Rite Aid, a year, about eight, Eight years ago, actually, I, I stood there for my oh, oh wow! I stood there for all the students then, and I'm going to tell you, it's it's the it's the it's the board. We have to make sure that we allow the money so that our, our the safety is always going to be there for our students and there for our teachers and there for everybody. That's What's your it. Plan? Oh, pardon me. What's your plan? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. We have there um in all the the the, the bond. There are programs and there are situations right now that, that, that are helping the 
participating in democracy, but I am going to try to get to you guys too um, when we get a chance. So thank you. I really don't want to stop that, but I sort of need to stop that a little bit. Ryan, same questions. You remember them? I, I think I do, yeah. I, most everything with people starts with respect. Uh, everybody likes to be respected, to feel that they're part of the process, that that there is a distinct strategy of what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish. For whatever reason, our society, we've, we've, we've started to devalue education in the people that are involved in education. And it's, it's very detrimental. Uh, if I had it my way, I would try to make Lansing School District teachers the, the highest paid teachers in, the, in our region. And the reason being is that I want talent. I want people who are gonna come in who are the best at what they can do, that are gonna produce the best possible results that we can have. You know, unfortunately, money is still an important piece of that equation. People do evaluate different districts. What's going on? How much do they pay? What are their benefits packages? Also, when a district is struggling, it's harder to attract that talent. Oftentimes, we're going to have to offer more to get those individuals, but it's very doable, especially with young people. Don't we all remember when we were younger? We all thought that we were bulletproof. We all thought that we could accomplish and do anything. And so that extra money could lure those people here. In terms of retaining talent, once again, it comes down to respect. It's making sure that teachers who are our frontline workers, they have access to me, to share with me what their ideas, what their concerns, what their gripes are. You know, it's not really my job to go into buildings to try to micromanage, but it is my job to listen and to look with my own eyes at what's going on in these buildings day in and day out. Because when I'm sitting at the dais, how can I ever make a decision when I don't know what is going on? If I have to have a difficult conversation with the superintendent, how can I do that if I do not know what is going on? So we have to try to open up those pathways to make it so that information can flow freer because there are, our, our community is full of very talented people with a lot of very capable ideas. We just have to create the conditions to be able to monopolize on those ideas. In terms of safety, that's a pretty big responsibility and it certainly starts and it ends with us on the Board of Education. You know, we do have to work with you know, teachers, administrators and such to discuss what they feel is going to be effective, what they feel is going to make students feel comfortable. Because the goal should not to be to make schools look like prisons. That's the last thing we really want to do. But we do have an obligation to make sure that when somebody's son or daughter comes to school, that they're going to go home and they're going to be safe. In terms of the behavior things, once again, we have to look at what are other districts doing? What are other successful models that are being implemented? And we have to continue to have those discussions and say, what is the best path that we can do? Good. Thank you, Ryan. So my next question, I'm going to switch away from the teachers and to the students a little bit. And the question starts out with, will you or do you think you have an obligation to visit the classrooms and see what's happening in the classrooms? Do you, should you ride the bus and understand the students' needs? How will you engage with the students to understand what they might need, I guess, the best? And I'm gonna start off with uh, Kurt on this one. Perfect, thank you. 
So I should note, by the way, that Rick was one of my music teachers growing up, and that Glenn worked at the elementary that I worked at. And uh, so I think about like the obligation to be in that building. As I, I had a lot of the best and brightest, Paul Fry, who we talked about earlier, Diana Spicer, um, and I was a difficult kid. And I think what happened later in life was what I realized is I was living a life that people didn't understand inside of the system. So like, there's a famous picture in our household where I have a key around my neck. And my wife, when I met her, she saw that and she cried. She said, why did you have a key in kindergarten? And she didn't understand, because she's from Canton, Michigan, that there's kids like me that just go home. I walked from Fairview Elementary School to 1321 or 1306 or 1304, depending on what year it was, East Oakland. And when I got home, no one was home. And so I had teachers, I had uh, Dr. Rodriguez, who's on the board now, ask me if I was being abused because my legs were all cut up. I was a, he can't tell now, I'm getting old and fat, but I used to be a small, scrawny kid. And he said, what's wrong with your legs? But I had to climb up on the cupboards to get, no one was home with me, right? And so I learned early on that the people often, sometimes in schools, aren't the people that understand the kids who need the most help. It was so apparent to me. So when I get a question like that, which I didn't pay him to give me, it's, the answer is obviously yes. You can't know or address or fix what you don't see, all right? And that's why I was endorsed by the MEA, but they asked me what would I want to tell all the teachers. My answer was nothing. I would want to go in and listen and learn and know because I, I can tell you a lot about business. I can tell you a lot about making money and buying houses and flipping houses. I can't tell you that much about being an educator for three decades. I can't tell you about being in a, I've been in many shootings, unfortunately, but I can't tell you about being one at work, all right? And so there's, an, there's more than an obligation. There's not another way. You can't address these problems and not be a part of it. You're talking about the buses. Why do we have people that don't want to drive our kids to school, right? I'm not smart enough to know the entirety of the CATA situation, but I know what it's like to be on a bus from Otto Middle School to 622 Brook Street. I know what it's like to get off at uh, Hildebrandt Park and fight 15 people, right? I know what it's like to have a bus driver have her coffee spilled on her because she didn't, wouldn't let somebody on with a that was missing their bus pass, which used to be an insane requirement to get on the bus to go home back in the day. So you, you can't have any positive effect realistically without going. So the answer is so obviously a yes. I'm not even at the yellow light and I'm just gonna stop talking to spare you all. Thank you so very much. And so next, Caitlin. Same question? Yes, please. Great, yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, yes, the obvious answer is yes. Uh, there's actually a ton of research, not to be a nerd about it, but there's a ton of research on how incorporating youth voice into any youth impacting policy decision is critical to its success. So it's not up to us as adults to graft our understanding of what life looks like through an adult lens and through an adult developmental capacity. We can't graft that on to the experience of kids who are going through something completely different. Um, and so, yes, certainly, we need to include the voice of kids. The other cool thing I've learned uh, as a trustee on the Board of Education is that each board member is assigned as a liaison to certain schools. So mine are North and Beekman. And so there's a great in there um, as a way to check in throughout the year in terms of what things look like in the schools, going into the schools, as you mentioned, riding the buses, meeting with students, meeting with teachers, meeting with parents at those schools for which you're, you're a liaison. And I think that's incredibly valuable and absolutely something that's important. Uh, again, an easy answer, as you said, so I will also cede my time. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Would you like to answer that same one? 
because then I can do something tricky to all of you. <laughs> oh, highly up to you. If you'd like me to, right. sure. So would you please answer that same question? I will answer that question. I actually am a parent in the school district, so how I do ride the buses, I do go into the schools, I do get to see what's happening. And yes, you should. We really do need to do it. I mean, at the school, beginning of the school year, I'm that parent that goes in and sits down with all the teachers. Hey, as long as he's in this building, you're his parent. He should treat you as you are, as if I'm in the room with you, and you should. He should interact that way. If he does not, take him behind the building is what I tell them most of the time, and we laugh about it. But they have that one-on-one -on -one connection with me, no matter where I'm at. They know they can reach out to me. We can contact. We can communicate. So it is a. It is everybody's job, not just the board, but anybody. The community as a whole should be helping to bridge all of this together. You know, judges. City Council, go ride the buses, go talk to the kids, go volunteer. And I do know some of the judges here do do that because I know they have actual mentees in the district. So, yes, we should be doing that. I mean, and I don't think we should just be assigned schools being on the board. We should be entering all schools because each school atmosphere is different. You have kids with ELS. So you, we need to know what they need, what their needs are. We have kids who are underprivileged. We need to be able to help them as well and help them where they all learn and be all feel the same way instead of feeling different. So yes, it is our job. All right. Thank you very much. Now what I'm going to do is ask all of you the same exact question. And it's very close to the last question. And it's how in this, in this time where all of us are kind of stretched, how are we going to engage the parents in the educational process? How would you, what could you do as a school board member? What policy could you set? What action could you take that you think might help get those parents more engaged? I, and I'll go right down the line. Okay. So as a parent, one of the things that I started doing was going to the board meetings or watching them online. But some people don't have time or some people don't feel that they should be going because they don't necessarily understand it or why or how it affects them. So it is our job as I just it's my job as a parent and someone who can advocate for kids to show parents how to interact with the schools, with the districts. So getting them to open up to say what their needs are. If, hey, we don't have food, I'm that resource to say, let me help you get what you need. Let me because, again, without the understanding and without the support of the schools for the families, the child will not succeed. I mean, it could be something as simple as my little sister needs diapers and my mom is frustrated because she can't go to work. We can do little stuff like that. I mean, it's it's one child, one family, then the education system. That's how we have to look at that. And then the community. We all have to be a link to make the child successful. That's, that's what we need to do. All right. Thank you. If it takes a village to raise a child, are we not all part of that village? And we all have to come together. We fail to realize that lots of times our parents are not invited. In fact, many times, unless they have to come pick up Johnny or little Susie because uh, either of an appointment or because they misbehaved, they're not invited to come into the school for any other reason. As a board member, a future board member, 
I think it's important for us to, to open up our doors to our parents so they can see what's going on. They can be part of the education system and they can be, uh, they, and they can give us feedback and we can give them feedback. But right now, I can tell you, as a former educator, we didn't want parents coming in, ever. I did, I invited them all the time. Come in, sit with me. I was so old at the time, I'd already had uh, parents and I had grandparents. So that's what caused me to retire. Once you get to third generation, that's got, that's got to stop. So anyway, uh, you know, that's what I'm saying is we need to invite our parents in. We need to invite the, the community. I mean, you're paying for these buildings. You should see what we have to offer and you should see what's going on behind those four walls. And that's just, that's just part of our duty as, a, as, a, as part of the village raising these children. That's it. All right, thank you. Brian? To me, it all comes down to accessibility and trust. That simple. I have to make sure that I give parents access to me because the more conversations I can have with them, the more that they'll trust that they can share with me the bad things that are going on. What happens is oftentimes when there's negative things going on, people are very apprehensive of sharing that information. People are afraid of retribution. What might happen if I say bad things? And so it's important for me to listen to those things and to build those relationships. We have to go to events, football games, basketball games, community things, and, and, and be out there so people can feel comfortable saying, I can go up to Mr. Smith and I can tell about what's going on in my school or what is going on with my child, and he might actually listen to me. He might actually try to do something about it. So if we can create more opportunities for parents to engage, we're going to see those results change. In terms of the individual schools themselves, I mean, we can encourage events at schools or where there's more meet and greets or more walk through the classroom with your teachers type of stuff. But those decisions are oftentimes up to the teacher. It's their classroom. It's what they want to do. What time do they have? I can only do and, and manage my time and my involvement. And those are the things that I would do is get out there, go to those events, make myself accessible so people do have issues or they just want to talk in general, that I'll grant them that. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. I think there's an element of, we, we used to, I, in my old life, I worked for a guy named Dan Gilbert, and we, like I said, built a mortgage company, and it was really a mortgage company built on actually a bunch of quirky isms, and one of which was really understanding that we are the they, which means that anytime there's a us, them, or you, there's conflict, and I think one thing that happens for a variety of reasons is the board and the teachers are not the, they're not the we, they're the they. The parents and the teachers are not the we, they're the they. The parents and the board are not the we, they're the they. And so you got to address that. And so how do you do it? I, I, Ryan's my neighbor, by the way. Um, we got to make systems more uh, easy for parents to understand. All right. And what I mean by that is like right now, I was watching the Fox 47 thing, Lansing Schools, which I think of personally, my opinion going into it was like, it's a struggling distant district, has a $40 million surplus. So I started looking, they have 40 extra million dollars right now. So I started looking through some stuff, and it's I, uh, I'm in I'm the MBA program at Michigan State right now. I have two master's degrees. I couldn't understand it. I've been watching, reading your stuff, smart people stuff, and I love what you're on. But <laughs> even when I go through that, i got to get my wife involved. Um, the, there's, we, I think we take for granted what, the, what many average people know about the systems and how to use them. My nephew Anthony, I don't know which way is Fairview Street from here. My nephew that Anthony way. was shot and killed in a house on Fairview Street in March of last year. Marcel Crothers, my childhood hero, calls me and says, hey, we want you because of what I do with the NFL. We want you to come in and try to help these kids. He was a really popular student. 
and they have all these grieving services. And when I looked at these pamphlets, I'm like, these are for kids? Like, a f my, my nephew's forever 15. A 15 year old's gonna read and understand this? And I think we do that with the parents too. We give so much information, we think we have resources, but if it's not digestible, and I'm not picking, I'm using an example. You got so much great stuff on positive behavior stuff, but when I read that, it's like hieroglyphics to me. And the board does that too. When I went through the budget, right, I've had enormous amount of financial success in my life and I'm reading through this budget like I don't know what this means or where that money went or how did we get to the number of three million dollars for air conditioning and who did we did it all did it all go to Acme company or did we bid it there's like not information for parents to make good decisions so even if we wanted to be engaged and break down the barriers of the us and the them and, and really understand that we are the people it's all of us and it's we and not they I don't think it's practical or pragmatic to think these teachers or these students could really understand or digest a lot of the resources there are. So I believe that's a long-winded way of saying one of the things the board can do is be present, at, be present at conferences or where parents are. Be present where the resources are, where the parents might be, and make things digestible for them as easily as possible. Um, even this process, I didn't even know we could run for the board. My next door neighbor is the mayor of East Lansing, the actual mayor, Ron Bacon, yet here we are running for Lansing board. It's convoluted. I couldn't even process how that could be, but I wanted to do it. So we've got to make this entire process, K through 12, every resource available, there's work that the board can do to make it better understandable, more understandable. Great, yeah, it's, it's hard to go last to a question that we've heard a lot of great answers to already, right? Um, but I completely um, agree that parents, it's not just about providing them opportunities, right? That's access. It's more than that. Access is not always equitable. Instead, we need to meet parents where they're at, what works best for them. Um, if we've got parents who are juggling um, a night shift, then after school meetings are not gonna work for them. Um, if we've got parents who are struggling with mental health themselves, then meeting in person is not going to work for them. So for me, it's about meeting parents where they're at, whether that means virtually, whether that means at a conversation hour on a Saturday, whether that means at a football game, because that's, that's what they're interested in. Um, but we have to find out what the most marginalized parents in the district, what is their barrier? Um, and we need to find ways as board members to break down those barriers or to overcome those very barriers by making access more equitable. That's all, thank you. Thank you so very much. So we've got 10 minutes left and each of you are promised a minute at the end. Would you like to just take your minute or would you like to kind of give your minute to the crowd and they'll raise their hand, you pick whoever you want and answer their question, same for all five of you. I'll give mine to the crowd. We'll give yours to the crowd. So does anybody have a question that they would like? I love that. All right. Um, so I'm gonna let you choose. Um, so we've got these three. I saw your hand first. Hi, my name's Joanne. It's a very basic question, and it speaks to the ignorance of the population. Okay, so I have no clue how many open seats there are for this position. Am I voting for one of you, or can I have three of you? You can have three of us. There's actually three open seats, there's and there's six open. candidates. Yes, okay. ma'am. That's all I wanted to know. So I guess I can give somebody else another. I saw another <laughs> hand. Sorry. Did you set the one? Go ahead, sweetie. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, how many open teaching positions are there, uh, and why do you think they're not filled? Oh my God! I... And, and if you know about the support staff open positions as well. 
There are, I, I'm not even gonna say how the numbers because I can't remember, but there's a lot of both open teacher positions, support staff. I did see a few social work positions. I've actually been encouraging people to just up start as a sub and then, you know, get the training to become a teacher, a teaching assistant. Talk to me about the resources that you need to do the application because there's a lot of openings to the point that you can't even count them anymore. I mean, you have, I know they need at least two social workers at Eastern, two, one or two. Um, I think the same thing at Pat and these are just schools that I've been in, so. Do you have a guess on why they aren't filled? Oh, she's she yeah. Rick, finish. You can finish that part. Why they aren't filled. Go ahead. Well, there, there are no teachers going into education, number one. Number two, I think it has to deal with, and I'm going to give my questions. You can ask me whatever you want. But I think a lot of it has to do is because uh, we also, um, the retention is not there. Right. We have so many people that are making a mass exodus right now. And a lot of it, I feel, is because uh, we, we, don't, we lack discipline. And when we don't have discipline, then what ha everything goes awry. And that's exactly what's happening. And you're having people right now, teachers, many of my friends are just leaving because they have no foot. They have no foothold to do anything. That's it, and, and how we can, and there's over 150 open spots at least. Yes. So, um, at least one person mentioned some of the things about the facilities of the Lansing School District. Lansing has superior facilities, whether it's little things like the MacBooks or bigger things like the way that the schools are designed. But is the question why don't they know? Yeah, why don't why people think surrounding areas know? No. That has Thank you, John. I think that's a pretty simple answer. We're not marketing it properly. Oh, you know, un unfortunately, oh. <laughs> unfortunately, education's become very competitive. Of where all these school districts are fighting with each other over students, and and so facilities is actually one of those talking points. It's one of those recruitment tools, and one of the things that's going to be important is for Lansing to shut off the valve of people that are school of choicing outside of this district. It's imperative that that valve gets shut off and we have the facilities. I think that there's the programming that's there. I think some of the ideas that the current board and the superintendent are talking about are huge steps in the right direction. And the thing about momentum is it's like a snowball. You know, we lost momentum over the course of 25, 30 years, but we can gain that momentum back. And I think there are pieces in place of where we can do that. My, my time's up. Sorry, Joe. Thank you. I'll do the same thing. I'll take your for your question. Me? Even if somebody else has to answer it. Yeah. Um, how important is it um, for all the schools to have gender-neutral bathrooms and to have protections in place for students who are trans or <coughs> having identity issues? Um, so I wouldn't use identity issues. I think there's people, and I'm not trying to correct you, but I think there's people that have made identity choices that whether they're fluid or not I think people are working through those and when you do that the school's so ubiqu ubiquitous in people's life I mean most people aren't going to spend 13 years at any other thing there's not people going to GM for 40 years anymore or working as teachers for 30 years anymore so the K-12 the K through 12 system has to be welcoming inclusive equitable to everybody in, in all gender all um, uh, spaces of that gender journey in my opinion Felt like nine seconds. <laughs> okay, so let's go to Caitlin then. Sure, yes. Okay, thank you. Um, I have this question. 
perception is reality. Yep. What do you think as a board member that you can do, because I'm even hearing it here, to stop the narrative that every student in our district is challenged, um, needs all this help, isn't performing. I think our kids are every bit as bright as every child in the region. But Lansing continuously, not only do we have that narrative, we perpetuate it. So how do you see where we can get the marketing out there to say, not everybody in our district is troubled. Here's our successes. Here's what we have going on. Because even tonight, all I'm hearing about are Question, the challenges. Please. There you go. Question, please. Sure. So uh, if I'm understanding your question is, how do we better sell what Lansing has going on? Is that correct? How do we better advertise and, and change that reputational? Sure. Yeah. So I completely agree with what Ryan said earlier that um, a lot of times that's a sales pitch. I went to all four graduations this spring um, for all of the schools. Those kids are brilliant. Right. The, the music that we heard, the performances that we saw, um, the speeches that we heard, the plans for success that the students have was just incredible. Um, and so it's things like that. It's things like Ebersol, which is an incredible resource in the Lansing community. It's things like our language immersion elementary schools, Luton and Post Oak. Uh, oh no. Okay. I didn't really get to answer you all the way. That's okay. I just, I'm always disturbed by the narrative. Yes. And what time is it? 7.30 on the dot. Exactly where we need to be. Sorry to be so pushy. You guys love you very much. You know I do. Um, thank you all so very much for spending the time. And thank uh, you, thank you all. So this time, what we're going to do is open it up to each of you for two minutes of an opening, and then I will ask you a few questions as time allows. But I'm going to ask all three of you the same question, and I'm probably going to ask you the same question, alternate to the crowd, let them ask you the same question, then two minutes again at the end. Are you guys okay with that? We are good. Would you like to go first? Sure, All thank right. you. Uh, good evening everyone, my name is Judge Kristen Simmons from the 54A District Court. It's a pleasure to be here and see some of your faces today. I've been on the bench since 2019. I was appointed by Governor Whitmer uh, to the bench in September of 2019. Prior to serving as one of your district court judges, I was litigation manager at the Michigan Department of Corrections. Um, and I segued into that position after serving as an assistant uh, attorney general. Um, in the CLE division, it was the division then known as, as Civil Litigation, Employment, and Elections, um, where I was a, a litigation attorney uh, representing the Department of Correction mainly, um, but defending the dollars of the uh, public. And so prior to that, I was an assistant city attorney and legal advisor to the police department. I served there for approximately three years before going to the attorney general's office. And then prior to that, uh, I was a public defense attorney. This was before we had a public defender's office here in Ingham County. Um, I worked in criminal defense and I represented uh, the public through our court appointed list. At the same time, I was a professor, adjunct faculty over at Lansing Community College, uh, where I uh, spearheaded a clinic a family law clinic and I took students that I was that were in my classes and I gave them practical experience um, with uh, handling 
just your run-of-the-mill run divorce cases um, and some uh, parenting issue cases. Um, and prior to that, I was a paralegal. Um, so I've been living in Michigan since 2009, moved here where I attended law school at Cooley Law School. Um, and then I chose to stay here to serve this community. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Anthony Flores or Tony Flores. I'm a 54A district court judge appointed by uh, Governor Whitmer in April of this year. Uh, prior to coming to uh, that in my life, I actually did spend a lot of time uh, here. In 1989, I moved to Lansing. Uh, I, I went to Cooley Law School. I met my wife there. I married her. I lived on Kipling. And so I've always lived in these neighborhoods. Um, I spent 16 years in the Ingham County Prosecutor's Office, two years in Macosta, 14 years here, where I was the District Court Unit Chief. I was a Circuit Court Unit Chief, a Child CSC Unit Chief. Uh, in, that, in that regard, I've tried over 100 felony cases, um, homicides, uh, CSCs. I was a Unit Chief of the Child CSC Division. I then left uh, Ingham County to go into academia. So I did was there for 16 years as a professor. I taught uh, criminal procedure, criminal law, evidence, and trial skills uh, until I got a call from the governor saying, would you like this appointment? And I was quick quick to take it. Um, I asked friends of mine, why do you want to be a judge? You know, what about being a district court judge? And they said, you get to serve people. You get to serve people every day. And that's how I see this position. This is, this is, this is a public service. This is a valuable public service. Um, I've also raised two daughters here. Both my daughters uh, graduated from Lansing Catholic. Uh, they also uh, graduated from Michigan State University. They're both 24, they both moved on. Uh, and I've married somebody, and I'd give you all this advice, marry somebody smarter than yourself. I married my wife, who I met in law school. She's a better lawyer, she's smarter than me. It's the best advice I ever got. It is a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be serving the city of Lansing. Uh, and it's, a, it's also a pleasure to work with Judge Simmons. I, I'm right across the hall from Judge Simmons, and I get to see her do justice every day. And, um, and it, it really is a value, it's been a valuable experience. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Brian T. Jackson, and I am Lansing made and Lansing proud. I could talk about my personal life for a little bit, or the legal boring stuff. And I think you guys probably want to hear a little bit of both. So um, some of my first memories, my first job, I came up to Foster, picked up my paycheck for being a Parks and Rec referee, Parks and Rec referee. Go to Hunter Park Pool. I know that it's very cold, so you can only go there when it's 85 degrees and above. My mother taught at Resurrection School down the street for 30 plus years. She's an educator her whole life. Rest in peace to my mom. And I went to Lansing Sexton High School played sports, graduated from there, went to Western Michigan, transferred to Indiana State. I earned my bachelor's and a master's degree in criminology, which is the study of crime and basically the causes of it as well. I uh, played a little arena football and then went to Howard Law School and took your advice, even though I didn't know you then, Mr. Flores, Judge Flores, but I married my wife, Ariel, from uh, law school also. We met at Howard Law School and we're back here. As far as uh, legal experience, I have prosecutorial experience. I started off my legal career as an Eaton County prosecutor. 
uh, where I prosecuted. I had a misdemeanor docket, had dozens of cases every day. Um, I went to the city attorney's office in Lansing where I was a prosecutor there as well. And now I work in the public defender's office where I carry a felony docket out of uh, the out county. I am extremely proud and honored to be a candidate. I got signatures, petitions all winter and spring long, hundreds of signatures, made it through a challenge of my petitions and still am glad to be here. There's um, two positions available and three of us and I'm hoping to earn one of your two votes. Thank you. Okay, thank you all very much. And I've got a question for the crowd. Your side conversations are bleeding into um, our ability to hear. Uh, so if you could keep it down, I'd really appreciate that. Um, first question is going to come from the pre-prepared ones. And by the way, these were given to me. I didn't make up these questions. I, uh, I'm not really that smart enough to do that. So I'm gonna go with the very first question and then I'm gonna let the crowd ask the second question. The question is, what role does the court system play in systemic racism? And I'm gonna leave it a simple question with a complicated answer. Are we just going straight down the line? Yeah. Okay. Um, the court shouldn't play any role in it, but unfortunately it does, and that's because there's a lot, people that, that work in the, criminal justice system and in the judicial system, they come with their own implicit biases a lot of times. Um, and the systems were set up in a way that it, it was set up in a way that it disadvantaged a lot of people that were already disenfranchised. And so there, I think has been a lot of change over the years and even more recently with reforms to try to address those issues, but we have only really begun to get to the bottom of what those issues are. I think that uh, there's been a lot of push to create more um, opportunities to be problem solving as a judicial system versus um, using systems that further disenfranchise people. Um, I think I've been an advocate um, in the judicial system to make sure that as I'm presiding, I'm looking and trying to be attentive to what the underlying issues are. And not every judge um, or every person has the uh, the wherewithal or the ability to do that uh, or to do that fairly. It's an unfortunate thing. I've practiced not only in every court in this county, but in uh, many other courts across the, the state and um, in just about every uh jurisdiction in this state and there are some judges out there that still have a mindset that um, could really further place the judicial system uh, back a hundred years um, and so uh, it's important that we have judges that understand that law needs to be colorless it needs to be fair and impartially applied um, and that people need to be able to administer justice without fear about um, what th those around them may think um, and that they're applying the, the law to each person judiciously and in a way that is equitable. Same question? Yes. All right. It's a $100 question these days. I, um, it's funny, I was asked this, and I believe Judge Simmons had asked this by Governor's Council when we sought the appointment uh, concerning race in the courtroom and race, systemic race in the criminal justice system. And uh, one, of the, one of the answers that I responded was is, we have to be naive to think that race doesn't play a part in our criminal justice system. It's absolutely naive. I come from, we I come from West Arizona and Colorado. 
I was taught to run away from the police, not run to run to the police. I never was taught to run to the police for a problem. And oh, the only thing that, that stems some of that is an understanding between communities, law enforcement, that we all make a difference and we're all treated with respect, but it doesn't work in, in a criminal justice system where laws aren't applied evenly by the trier of fact. Laws are not tried evenly. And that's something that Judge Simmons and I have looked at in regards to how do we be objective and impartial and, and also have a diverse mindset into understanding where people come from. Uh, you can't be a judge and not understand the background of someone. You can't be a judge and, and, and not understand the struggles of life and the struggles of, of, of what people have gone through. The only way to be a judge, in my opinion, is to be in the community and out there and have a full understanding of what your community is going through so you can evenly apply the law. That's all people are asking for. People are asking for the chance to be heard and for an even application. If you want to be an advocate, go to the legislature, okay? Go vote for the legislature. The justice system relies on objectivity and following the law. And you, you, you appoint people and you look for people who have the framework and the understanding to learn from that. Not, not to judge as this is what I am and this is who I am, but to learn from the people that they serve. We serve as judges. We, that, that, that's, we learn from the, our constituents. No different from any, anyone else. Any judge who tells you differently is not a good judge. Okay? Judges learn from the people in front of them and they apply the, the law evenly. I think this bench and, and, and the bench, and I'll judge Ward's right there, Judge Simmons, Judge Buchanan, this bench understands that. This bench understands it was so gratifying to me to come along and find, find judges who understood that our constituents and those in front of us are the only reason we're there and to really understand that it doesn't matter where you came from or who you are or what your background is. What we have to do is apply the law evenly with the understanding that we would be completely naive if we didn't think there was not bias in the courtroom. There is. There's bias in prosecution. There's bias in law enforcement. And it's up to all of us to stem that. We have to be vigilant. We have to daily be vigilant against it. Not only is there bias in law enforcement and the prosecution, the numbers show that at every single level of the criminal justice system whether it's the decision for a police officer to pull over a car for tinted windows or not, or whether it's the decision to actually write the ticket for tinted windows or not, whether it's the decision to arrest somebody for uh, driving while license suspended, whether it's the charges the prosecutors bring, all these numbers show that there's a disparity. Whether it's the number of charges, the severity of the charges, the lack or plea negotiations that happen, all disparities. Conviction rates, sentencings go harder and longer and those numbers are there to show it. And the criminal justice system plays a huge role not only because it is the mechanism for this, but also the law says as long as you don't explicitly say that race was a factor, then race is not a factor in the, in the eyes of the law. So it would take uh, a police officer, a judge, a prosecutor, anybody, they would actually have to say, the reason I'm doing it is because this person is named uh, XYZ. So it's a huge factor and um, being in the community is important and I'm in the community very hard every day. I think that I can uh, kind of cross into a whole wider range of people, diverse people, whether it's 
white, black, any ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status, I am able to connect with a lot of people and I think it's just from being in the community. So yes, the criminal justice system is flawed and I think there's a lot of evidence to that. Uh, I first learned it taking my master's courses um, and I'm still learning today, especially as a public defender. My clients, majority black and brown people, all poor by definition. They tell me and I see and I read about it every single day in my day job. And it is a problem. That's one of the reasons why I'm running is because I think that uh, I can recognize my bias and work on them, but also treat everybody in this diverse community with dignity and respect and be able to use empathy when I deal with people. And that's one of the things I think I can bring to the table. Thank you. Thank you. So, Judge Simmons, may I ask a favor of you? Yes. Somebody's going to raise their hand that they want to ask a question. Will you pick the person, but Brian, or I'm sorry, Mr. Jackson will uh, start the answer first, and we'll come back to you guys. So does anybody have a question for any of the judges? And if the answer is no, then I must start with Mr. Jackson and ask my second question. Anyone? Okay. Then... The second question is, um, do you recognize and understand the scientific evidence of the benefits of cannabis and cybicillin? Do I understand the scientific evidence? Um, well, hmm, I can't say I understand it fully. I do believe that there is scientific and medical benefits, especially to cannabis. Um, I think that there's research that shows it. I, you know, use cannabis from time to time and um, can speak personally on it. But as far as the science, um, you know, there is a limit at some point when a person can be impaired when they drive. But I think that um, the science is also showing that, you know, it's not so much how much a person uses, it's that person in particular, how long they use, there's a lot of factors to it. So um, I support the law as it stands basically, which is to let people use recreationally, medically, and to regulate it and make sure that it's safe for consumption. So yeah, um, I, I try to understand it and I, try to keep learning as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Same question? Yes, sir. All right. Well, it's really, legally, it's not really a question, all right? Uh, the, the question stands on, uh, do we believe in, in the science of, of, of any type of pharmaceutical? And, and we have to treat cannabis as no different. And so we treat, recreational is a ballot initiative now. And so it's recreational given the, same, given the right age, not unlike alcohol. Uh, it, it, it should be treated as recreational. That's what the law says, and judges are meant to follow the law. Question is really goes to how do, we, how do we now indoctrinate some of these standards that we've done for like OUIL, which is at a .08 right now, all right? And we all know that the test for .08 was really just picked out of the air somewhere. You know, they, they just kind of did it without, with, with subjectivity. And I would like a test of the science for, for seeing if somebody is materially or effectively affected in the manner of their drive 
I don't see a test right now. I see nothing from the Michigan State Police which would indicate that, that this person has been substantially and materially affected in their use of, of cannabis. When you get a test, then we can, we can qualify it legally. And we have to qualify it through expert witness and foundation in order to use it against someone because we're taking somebody's liberty away. We're, we're indicating you no longer get to be in the society. We're moving you out. Well, before you do that, all these fundamentals have to be reached. And one of the fundamentals is, is the test right? Is it a good test? And the answer is not right now. There's nothing that MSB can give us to qualify that as a test that is, that, is, that, is, that is good for recreational driving or use after use, until that's an aspect. So as a science, absolutely, we, we, tr we trust science. We also know that science changes. What was science 20 years ago isn't science two years ago. I remember when I first began practicing law in 1992, it would be crazy for me running through district court to think that we would have a ballot initiative for marijuana as, as a recreational use. It is a thing now, okay? Prosecutors understand it. It is, the way, it is the way our society functions, and, it, and, and we have grown into that. We've grown into the acceptance of that. Now, how do we criminalize it? And how do we make people responsible or use it responsibly? And that is, that's the test of time that the test takes. That's what, that's what law enforcement's looking for. That's what criminal defense attorneys, public defenders are looking for in order to really see, all right, if you're going to incarcerate somebody, how, how is it going to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt? Thank you. I just want to make sure I understand the question and is how do I believe in the science of yes I mean marijuana be, and what was the other por well, por portion? The, uh, do you recognize and understand the scientific evidence of the benefits of cannabis and psilocybin okay well I can't tell you that I know what the other thing was so I can't address that um, I, I, just, I didn't hear anyone else address this so I don't think I'm the only one but nonetheless um, I, I do recognize and understand that science or the scientific benefits of uh, marijuana and the use. I mean, the science is the science, and I'm not a scientist, but um, I do know that there is data out there that shows that it, it that it's beneficial in a myriad of ways. And I read that research. I've used that research when I was drafting the ordinance for the city to have a medical marijuana ordinance. So, I mean, to the extent that I um, understand, I understand enough to know that it's beneficial um, and that um, people should be able to use it to treat their issues when prescribed, um, but I can't, I'm not, I can't speak to the other issue because I don't, I don't know what the other thing is. Okay. I, I don't think it would be fair for me to clarify for you. I don't. Your no, I, I, I don't need a clarification. I'm just saying I don't know what it is. I can't speak <laughs> okay. to it. All right. Thank you. Being from the east side, knowing what psilocybin is, it's basically, the, are you going to support decriminalizing magic mushrooms? Got it. So, um, being from Boulder, I know what ma magic mushrooms right. are. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the last question is, um, what type of programs to deal with, um, sorry, I got a homeless, uh, drug issues, uh, will you create to help with uh, the causes that come, be, the cases that come before you. So, really, alternative courts. Are you? What are your positions on alternative courts? And I'll start with you, uh, Judge Stoll. All right, and and I'll stay seated. I'm a huge proponent of a specialty courts. I just think that that is the only way to effectively deal 
with some of the issues that, that are presented to us. Uh, alcohol issues, narcotics issues, uh, mental health issues I feel so strongly about. We, we have incarcerated more mental health problems than criminal problems. That, that's one of the things that we've done because we've chosen, and we're all responsible, including me, of not spending money where it needs to be spent. We've taken that piece of the pie and we've decided that one part of the segment of society shouldn't be treated. And those people not only should be treated, if we are the correct society, they are the most vulnerable. And so, and so we, we should expect the most treatment for that, for that society. Specialty courts allow the criminal justice system to do that. We, we, they allow to do it through narcotics. They allow to do it through alcoholism. I can send somebody to jail over and over and over and unless I get to the source of the problem, it's meaningless. It is meaningless. The source of the problem is the only thing that keeps people out. I'm not, I tell people this every day when they come on, on to, to probation for me. I'm not worried about you for the next six months. The next six months, we start running out of options. I have to use jail. I don't see the world like that. I don't see the framework of the world like that. But when I run out of options, I have to use jail. But I'm not worried about you for the next nine months. You, you're kind of on tether to me. I'm afraid of you for the next nine years, nine years from now where you have the same problems, the same mental health issues, the same narcotics problems, the same alcohol issues, the ones that rode you down this road in, into our criminal justice system. Unless we fix those problems, and especially courts help fix those problems, they give us the time we need to spend on probation, on matters, and then we get to spend money on it. And, that, and, that, and a lot of this is solved by where do you want to spend your money? I choose to spend my money based on things that are going to help society 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I don't want quick fixes because there are no quick fixes. What I want is I want somebody to, to beat an alcohol problem so they not only have a problem where they drink, they have a problem where they drink and they don't drive. And then they don't harm all of our families. Narcotics, the same thing. Controlled substance abuse, same thing. I've seen the struggles that family make and the horrific, the horrific problems that it's led to families. But you can't just sit there and tell somebody, don't do this, don't do this. It's far beyond that. It's far beyond that. I've watched it. I've been a part of it. I've seen how it's affected families, especially courts for now are the answers. Are, are they the complete answer? I don't know. But it allows us to spend money on things we need to spend money on. It's easy to hop on specialty courts as an answer because they do great things. It's designed to help people, for example, with mental illnesses, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, veterans have special needs. And, you know, as a public defender, I have clients who have all of these things, often homeless, mental health concerns, and addicted. And, you know, we say, let's do a specialty court. So, okay, what happens? Somebody commits a crime of drug possession, possession of methamphetamine. This person has a drug, addiction so they get arrested they go to jail for a while they get released a couple weeks later you come to court for the first time and then you come back to court and then you talk with the prosecutor about possibly going into drug court and then you got to get screened for drug court and hope that you apply that you qualify make sure you're in the right county make sure you got the right address make sure that you know you have a problem and want help so although it's a great thing most addicts don't even get into these specialty courts. Most people that have mental health problems, I wish I could say they're in the mental health court, but they're really in the Ingham County Jail. That's where they are right now. 
waiting and hoping that maybe there's a chance to get into a specialty court or just staying there long enough where it's pretty much like, dang, I already did all this time. And then what else strikes me is about specialty courts is that um, sometimes it's tougher to go through a specialty court than it is to go through um, a normal probation. A person with uh, homelessness problems, mental health problems, not only do they have to you know, drop on time, be able to pay for certain things um, and all that, but they have to do it more often. So it's, it's a good thing to, to give people the special attention they need and I would support expanding that so more people can receive that treatment. However, the reality is, is most people don't see it. So if the court could even adapt further and you know find some sort of restorative justice program or or homeless outreach program um, and not go through some of the formal channels that has to do with punishment incarceration do this or else um, then i think that could be used especially for the people that specialty courts are designed to help nonviolent offenders who have drug problems and addictions or uh, people with mental health issues that really just need to stay straight with CMH and um, get treatment. So specialty courts are great. Uh, I support them, but they are definitely flawed and we need to work on fixing them. Thank you. Uh, I think that my philosophy about uh, courts is that we need to be more problem solving. Uh, and I think that specialty courts obviously there are things that are flawed because we don't have the resources to offer uh, a specialty court to everyone uh, but I think they do a good work they do a good job of helping a lot of people uh, address the issues that they're dealing with that they may not otherwise be challenged to address um, I've been a proponent and I think many of you have seen me and heard me speak before about looking at the underlying issue and the root cause so that you can stop the cycle because a lot of times you're seeing the same people cycle through the system for the same types of actions and just giving them a fine um, or just giving them court uh, jail time is not always the what what needs to happen to restore them back to the community um, we need to look at the issues we need to be able to address those issues and not everyone's issue is relative to maybe a substance abuse issue not everyone's issue is relative to um, domestic violence um, it could be that they're just poor um, you know if you see people cycling because they're they, they, they don't have the resources to do what they need to do why am I giving them a fine why am I sending them to jail so that they can't go to work? Um, so I've been personally taking efforts in working to try to put together a, a program that would be designed to do that. Uh, and I've been gathering uh, resources through our community and aligning myself with some of our community justice partners. Um, I have already received funds for that purpose. But in, in even understanding that if I am able to create this program, I'm not going to be able to take everybody that needs help. But what you want to do is look at the most serious of cases and those people that you continue to see cycling and you want to try to help those people. If you think that you shouldn't do something because you can't help everyone, then you're, you're not doing a service to the community. You have to take it one step at a time. And again, things evolve services should be evolve um, and the program should evolve and, and, and expand in an effort that it can help as many people as possible uh, but again i think that the root uh to get to the root cause is the best way to re to restore justice but it also is the best way to build trust between the courts and the community i think 
the, the criminal justice system gets a bad rap a lot of times and a lot of time people don't trust the criminal justice system but if they see that the court is taking an individualized look at their issues and really taking a concern about making sure that they are rehabilitated and making sure that they are able to return to the community and be fully functioning uh, members and successful when they release are released from the court supervision then I think that that will restore justice and that will also restore and repair uh, what we have broken down between the criminal justice system and the public. Thank you so very much. No problem. So to conclude, we're, we're just a few minutes behind. Each one of you, <coughs> one minute closing statement. And Judge Simmons, please first. Thank, thank you. Um, again, it's been a pleasure for me to be here with you today. Um, I, I, I take it with, with no as no small feat that I'm able to come and serve this community every day. Um, I give it my all when I come before uh, anybody in the courtroom that this is my opportunity to impact people. The, the district court is the people's court. It's the time where we have the most interfacing with people. We're not like the circuit court where uh, they don't see as many people day to day. We are constantly dealing with different people and different issues every day um, and I pride myself on being a judge that is fair that is impartial that has compassion uh, I pride myself on being connected to the community um, and making sure that I show up in spaces that people don't normally expect to see a judge show up uh, but I want to be approachable I want people to know that uh, judges are human and that we are not in positions of power but we are in positions of service and so I um, again I'm humbled to be before you and I thank you for this opportunity so uh, thank you for, for all of you for being here this is um, th this is really where the best work is done for my day the rest of the day is like uh, on the bench hearing hearing stories that I you're trying to help whereas I'm here learning from the community and also learning about people from people who are involved in democracy. And th th that's why we're here today. That's why we're learning, because we all care. Uh, I've got 30 years of criminal law experience. I probably should have my head checked over that. I mean, that's a long time to be a criminal law lawyer and to be a professor. I love it. It's what I know. It's what I care about. It's, it's, it's what I've dedicated my life to on some level. And so having the ability to be a district court judge and meet everybody as they come in, treat them with respect, treat them with with dignity and then do what you can try to make a difference in somebody's life that's what we try to do as judges that's your that's that's what you're supposed to do that's why we're here and so uh, thank you for your time uh, this has been a very wonderful experience Lansing again has been my home my entire life every phase from childhood young teenager adulthood school, starting my own family, professional life has been in Lansing. And I'm very prideful of that. And I think that it's important to have a judge who has the background from the city at all experiences, all levels, to be able to make decisions that affect the people in the city. I think that it's important to at least have the empathy and to just know uh, the community very well, is which is what I do. Um, and it's an honor to even be here and be considered. And I would really appreciate if you do your homework, check out my website. I got some material over there. I'll be happy to answer any questions, but I'm hoping to earn one of your two votes if you live in Lansing. Thank you. All right, let's give it a hand.
Hi everybody, uh, Ryan Cost. I apologize initially for my hoarseness. Uh, my allergies are flaring up. I we had trash dumped in one of our neighborhoods. I had to go clean up or help clean up, and was in the weeds breathing it. Um, I am running uh, as a fourth generation first ward resident. Uh, my family has been here since 1913. Um, me and my husband live over on Magnolia. Um, we moved to the east side five years ago, um, but I am running because every day I go out and I knock doors and I meet people that are worried about their community and their community not being focused on the people that actually live here in the communities in our unique neighborhoods from Fab Acres, Baker Denora to Northtown, um, east side in between, Grossbeck. Um, we have so many unique things here in Lansing and people are getting left behind sidewalks are falling apart we have streets down to gravel Sheldon Street over on the north sides like that um, we have no one championing championing champion I'm sorry I can't say it championing nope can't do it <laughs> we, we don't have anyone getting the work done for these folks that are minor things and I literally can go around to places that I have knocked doors and I can see that the issues they had have been tackled because I'm involved and I, I believe in leading equally with the community side by side, putting the people first, not mega donors and the people that can afford to build four-story buildings on Michigan Avenue. We need to start focusing on our neighborhoods and our people, otherwise we won't have the greatest city uh, in the state, in my opinion, if we don't focus on the people that live here. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for waiting. Um, it's actually a beautiful night. Um, my name is Brian Daniels. I am the current First Ward City Council representative. I was appointed February 1st uh, after uh, my predecessor vacated his seat. Um, I am a small business owner on the east side. I grew up in Lansing. Um, after my parents divorced, I ended up moving around a little bit and then graduated from Grand Ledge. Uh, I joined the army after high school, was in Iraq, injured, had to learn to walk again. In doing so, I fell in love with fitness and I met the owner of a boxing gym in New York City. So I taught boxing in New York for five years and then I moved home because I had a son and I wanted him to grow up here and have the same experience I did. When, we, uh, when I was looking for a place to open a business, uh, I was given the opportunity on the east side and I absolutely love the first ward. I've lived here now uh, for four years. Um, uh, when I was appointed February 1st, one of the things I did immediately was start working other than just getting to know the job was start building relationships. Um, you know, I appreciate uh, Ryan wants uh, a champion for the people and I have been that. I've uh, added $500,000 to local roads. I've gone out and filled potholes myself. Um, I'm working with the neighborhoods to try to get a better understanding of not only what people need, but how we can get there. I understand that it's going to take a coalition of people uh, from all backgrounds to get there. It's not just, um, you know, not just uh, the underprivileged, it's not just the privileged. We are all living in Lansing and Lansing is for everybody. And so we've got to find a way to make Lansing work for everybody. I want to continue to do that. 
Um, and so I, you know, after being appointed, I have a one-year term left. If I win this election, then I'll run next year for a four-year term. So I appreciate you guys being here tonight, and I'm really excited about it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So first question from my list, next question from the crowd. And I will go to you, Councilman Daniels. Uh, in your words, what is the responsibility of city council? And in your words, what is your role within that? And then the same question will come to you. Absolutely. The responsibility of city council is a few things. One, we are the legislative oversight. So we create ordinances and, and we control the budget. Uh, but there's also um, a community component to it. So one of the things I think that we've lost on city council is the ability to actually have the teeth that we need for proper oversight. Um, so one of the things that I wanna do and I've been trying to do on my time in council is stand up for the things that haven't been done yet. Try to introduce resolutions that haven't been introduced. Try to have conversations that traditionally have been put off to the side. I think that city council is supposed to be, uh, you know, eight seats of people who are looking out for the best interest, not only of their ward, but the city as a whole. That's something that uh, I've continued to do, but I also have been able to, you know, work with uh, the people that are on council now who have, like Carol Wood, who has 23 years of experience, have been able to really learn how the system works, but then a better, more importantly, how we can fix it. So um, I, I think that not only uh, am I a leader and my responsibility is budget, but my responsibility is to, to take the system as it exists and, and use it the way it's supposed to be used, which is for the people and benefiting the people of Lansing better. I'll see you my time. Sure. Um, so he covered, he covered the ordinances, the budget, um, the resolutions, which are the, the uh, portion that I heard a lot there of, um, so I won't repeat it. Um, I think the portion that was glazed over was constituent services, especially when you are a ward rep, that is a top priority for you is your constituents within the first ward. I'm not running for an at-large position, um, yet I'm still tackling issues outside of our ward because, you know, when people send me messages, they know that Ryan Cost will respond with action. Um, I had a person that was outside of our ward. We just got a tree marked for her that was completely dead so we can get it cut and get a new tree from the cur between the curb and the sidewalk. And she had gone to the mayor's office and they came out and said it wasn't dead enough. But forestry did believe so. So I am tackling issues like this. That's just one example of many of doing constituent services. We have had years of no one doing constituent services. So I have jumped into that role the last several years, along with several nonprofit groups that are here in the east side community and in other areas. I'm going to trash cleanups in Fab Acres. Um, I'm giving my time and my own money to do these things to make our community better. Um, so while the, the, the city as a whole is important, we have got to focus on our community. And I believe my role as council member for the first ward is to focus on the people of the first ward and what is best for the people of the first ward. Thank you. Okay, so now the same kind of thing where I'm going to ask uh, uh, Councilman Daniels to pick someone from the crowd. They'll answer or ask a question and you answer it first. Time. Okay. Does anybody have a question for any of the city council candidates? Uh, Shannon. Um, how many pink or red tagged houses are on the east side? How many 
how many are Section 8, and have they done any advocating for the residents of Lansing Housing Commission houses who are experiencing issues? So if you, <clears throat> if you live on the east side, you can go down any one of our streets and you can find a pink tag or a red tag. Um, to answer your question truthfully, I don't know how many I've looked at, but I've looked at more than we should be looking at. Something is not happening. Something is going wrong in our neighborhoods that these properties are being left there for five years and six years. Um, so I don't have the number in front of me. I'm sure code compliance does. Um, I know that I have sent at least a dozen emails off to the code compliance department head to try to tackle some of these red tags where the foundation has caved in. And yes, I have gone out and done advocacy. Um, I went personally to some of these LHC houses and saw the holes in the ceiling where the tub leaks and the light bulb out of the, the, the light fixture that's in the ceiling because they can't turn it on because the water is dripping from their tub or the window doesn't have screens or the door is so jacked up the screen door it can't close. I have made phone calls. I talked to a man named Willie that lives in one of those houses and he described to me the conditions of that home like I was telling you about the sports score. Yeah, I've got some black mold in my bathroom. It's been there for years. There's no ventilation. Yeah, there's black mold around all my windows. They leak. These conditions are unacceptable. Lansing Housing Commission is being mismanaged by Doug Fleming. And I have called on Doug Fleming to resign. And I stand by that, that he needs to resign because I have gone to these houses and I've seen the conditions these people live in. And it's disgusting that we have allowed this to happen. And my heart goes out to every one of those people because every one of those houses I visited had small children that are living in that conditions. Would I let my own kids live in that kind of conditions? I think not. Thank you. Um, I was one of those children. Um, uh, we, we were poor on the south side growing up. Um, I, I have gone out to the LHC houses and I've seen the same conditions. I took pictures, sent them over to Brian McGrain's office. I've had several conversations with the mayor about uh, the fact that I think that Doug Fleming should step aside. I think that the leadership at LHC um, not only has been poor, but I think that it's just completely disrespectful. We've seen videos now um, with that disrespect, and I think that it going unaddressed uh, is an issue that we just can't allow. Um, I apologize. Am I allowed to get the question, some of the question again? Yes. Can I have that question again? How many? Uh, yes. How, the housing. How many are pink or red tagged? If you know the number. Yes. And then how many are allotted for Section Eight? And then you answer the third part. I, I apologize. I don't have the number. Um, I definitely can get that for you. Um, you know, I, I do think you know that we have honestly too many in the city as a whole. Like like Ryan said, you can go down every street and find a red tag house. I have one right around the corner from my house. Uh, I think that's one of the things that we have to address and that's something that we have to talk to state reps about, which is the landlord, uh, how what landlords are allowed to get away with, what slumlords are allowed to get away with, how long they have to actually work on their properties. And um, you know, for me, it's getting people to invest in the city, not just buying up vacant lots so that they can sell it for a profit later, but rather taking care and investing and allowing people in Lansing to be able to purchase these homes. That's one of the issues with the scattered housing is they didn't give these people an opportunity to actually buy the homes. One of the 
the catch-22s with the Lansing Housing Commission is if you can qualify to buy a home, you can't be a part of the Housing Commission. And so it, there's always these steps that people have to try to jump through, these hoops to have to jump through with the Lansing Housing Commission to be able to buy a home here. Um, but we have to find a way to, to, to make not only the housing stock that we have better, but bring these things back up to code. Uh, one of the budget priorities we just put in was hiring more code enforcement officers and retaining them, and also getting seeing if we can get parking officers to work on code enforcement as well, because they can go hand in hand. Um, I, I think thinking outside of the box, instead of just uh, going with what we've been doing for the last 20 years, has to change. The only way that we're gonna be able to move Lansing forward is by being more creative. I cede my time. Thank you so very much, and thank you for the question. Please think of another question, because I'll ask you again after this one. Yeah. But the, uh, the question I'm going to ask you now is, what do you see as the most important issue facing the Eastsiders of Lansing, and what do you see we should do about it that you're willing to do something about? Okay, me? Yeah, sorry. Ryan and Brian is way too yeah, similar. Yeah, way too close. Yeah, imagine my frustration when my dad knocks doors and his name is Brian. <laughs> um, so what, I think one of the major issues here on the east side is housing. Um, and that's true the further south that you move in the east side. Um, if you go wander down to South Hayford, south of Kalamazoo, there are many people that are barely making it by and then you have these red tag houses by slumlords that um, have gotten away with leaving them the way they are. Uh, foundations caved in, rotting boards, um, health and safety hazards on one of the properties that I turned in where there were 14 people packed into that house um, and the city wouldn't do anything. Um, Scott Sanford, after numerous emails until there was a body in the shed, um, and that is directly from the neighbor across the street. Um, so what I'm willing to do is what I'm doing right now. When I am not knocking on doors, when I'm not at my day job, I am literally in the community tackling issues that we are facing, um, addressing these red tags at a uh, pace that is, is as fast as I can go as a private citizen at this point. Um, so I am sending at least six emails a week to Scott Sanford about red tags, how we've ended up here, um, and, and not gotten any response. Um, I only get responses from the council president um, on the issue. So I am trying to tackle them, but I'm not getting that help from the government because you know I'm not on the inside of the beast of the belly there. Um, but I certainly, as a city council member, would advocate here in the first ward, whether it be putting together a community group to address issues like we used to with ENO, paint blitz, all kinds of uh, different ideas, thinking outside of the box, if you will, to help people retain homes, <clears throat> especially homes where they're affordable for first time homeowners or first time families to move into, because I've heard that a lot as well, is, the rent is so high we can't afford to purchase a home and that's my that was my cousin telling me that who lives over in Potter Walsh um, they couldn't afford to buy a home because of the prices 
um, and the, the rent was so high that they had no way to save for down payment. So we've got to figure out how we start taking care of this community together. Um, there are numerous ways that we can do this as community groups and there are ways that the government can help. I would like to explore and not exclude options, put everything on the table, focus on people. <laughs> Over the weekend, uh, there was a mother and her two children at home. People came to the door and knocked on the door. Five minutes later, came back, broke in, sexually assaulted her and robbed her and left on the east side. That is the biggest issue that we're facing, safety. We have seen, we have murders down, but violent crime is definitely up. Uh, you know, I apologize. I don't think that I've seen any of those emails that you've sent, so I can't respond to you if I don't see them. We have, we, I have been on the phone with the chief, with the mayor, with uh, the city council president. I speak with everybody all the time on what we can do. Uh, usually the response is, well, we can't respond to a crime until there is one. Well, what we can do is we can have neighborhood watch back. We can rebuild communities taking care of itself, making sure that the people getting involved in the community, they're watching out for their neighbors not just telling on your neighbor, but rather watching out so that we're growing a community. And we have that sense of community that I believe Lansing really used to have. Um, I know that growing up, my father uh, lived in Churchill Downs, that if there was an issue, a neighbor would address that issue. And, and now you don't have that same sense of community. And so rebuilding those community organizations, strengthening them, not it just being um, the, the older members of the community, but having a lot of youth brought into those organizations so that we can build them up and we're taking care of ourselves and working with the police department to increase safety, I think is the number one way to solve it and the number one issue. Anything that I can do, whether it be strengthening neighborhood organizations uh, through funding and grants, or uh, you know personally giving my time to a neighborhood watch, I'll absolutely do. I'll see you the rest of my time. Okay, thank you. Do we have any questions from the crowd here? And uh, Councilman Daniels, you can pick. Ryan. <laughs> so would you mind... Uh, I don't believe that for a second to you. Uh, one of the issues that I had as a candidate for the school board was the possibility of asking the BWL for a 10% uh, rebate for the school district because if you didn't know you know, we give discounts to McLaren and Sparrow and General Motors, but we don't to the school district. Would you support a 10% rebate that can be sent to the Parks Department to where maybe there was a collaboration between the school district and the city to help strengthen the after-school activities and the summer youth programs? And if so, how would you help encourage Mayor Shore to sign off on I think you go first, sir. It, was it was it him first or me? Because he chose you, so it's you first. Oh, you should have chose. You should have. I, I should have been the. Uh, yeah, yeah. You should have chose the. Question. I think. I, yeah, I'll answer it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the board yeah. of water and light is is a separate entity. Even though it's publicly owned, it's a separate entity from the city. Um, there there is the the board that is appointed. Um, I would encourage that break that 10% break for the school district, especially if they're going to 
use that for after school programs. And we spoke um, a little bit about after school programs, um, I think before, before this. And one of the things that we've noticed here in Lansing is the lack of programming compared to when I was a kid and I would go with my grandma to Morris Park School, which is no longer a school, and do the after-school programs there, making um, uh, fans was one of the things I remember, and I don't know why I remember that. Um, but it's programs like that. And, that, and that gymnasium was filled full of kids after school that were spending time doing something creative that they typically wouldn't do. So I love that idea. And getting program in our parks too. And that, that means parks as in the, not only the, the school parks, but even possibly into some of the public parks, which are adjacent in a lot of times to schools or close to a school. Um, so I really like the idea of the discount. Um, I would urge the mayor with everything I have, the same way I would urge him to get more money to fix some of our roads from the governor. Um, you know, I can't force him to do something, but I certainly can have that conversation and continue to be persistent. Um, I may be a lot of things, but one of them is persistent and I am constantly persistent about everything and relentless. Um, so on that issue, if that 10% were really gonna go towards something so good uh, and I do believe it would be good. Um, I would be highly supportive of it and push it. Thank you. I would, I would absolutely support it. On top of uh, that 10%, I would, I would immediately. I uh, sorry. On top of the 10%, I would go to other companies in the city. I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of bigger corporations that could also uh, be a part of this conversation. Uh, the BWL is obviously. Uh, crucial to the city of Lansing. You know, their rate hikes recently are hard on everybody. So I think that it, it would be beneficial for them to also give back to the community in some way. I would call Calvin Jones at BWL to get that conversation going, Dick Pepley at BWL to get the conversation going. I think um, being able to, uh, to reach out to them directly and to talk with them and then take that to the mayor and instead of having him think, well, I'll have to see what the BWL says. We'll say, oh, I already talked to them. We're on it. We just need you to do it. I think that going to him with art, with having solutions in hand instead of just going to him with a problem saying, hey, I need this fixed, um, I'd rather bring solutions than just uh, complaints. So yeah, I would support it. And I also think that we could get a lot of other people on board because uh, if you say you love Lansing, prove it. That's, that's, how, that's kind of my stance. Thank you. So if I try to end at 8.30, you both have one minute now. Or if I keep you to the 30 minutes, you get one more question and your one minute. Which would you prefer? Another question? I'd love to hear more questions. People yeah. should hear from us. You should get to pick, too. Okay, yeah. So let's do that. Is there another question in the crowd? Yes. Nancy has one. Yes. My question is, um, have either of you read the, sh sh the, the city charter and can you name something in the charter? And it would be you. I have, oh, sorry. I have read the city charter. Can I cite it to you? Absolutely, I cannot. No. But, but I have read it. Yes, I read it when, I read it when, uh, I read it before I was appointed. I've read it since I was appointed. I go to it before I ask a question to one of my, uh, fellow council people or to whomever I reach out with in the community. 
Um, you know, we, we live by the charter. My job is defined by the charter, um, but I cannot cite the charter to you now. So uh, the, the city charter is obviously the governing document here of the city of Lansing. It lays out the executive branch and what rights and responsibilities they have, the legislative branch, what rights and responsibilities they have. It talks about our boards and commissions that we have and that some are, are different in ways. They have more powers. Uh, example would be the Board of Water and Light board has more powers than say the advisory board for for the, the parks department. Um, so it basically lays out how far someone can go per our law. It would be the same thing as the United States Constitution, uh, just locally. Um, the other thing that it would lay out is um, different um, duties and roles for department heads. Different department heads are in there. Um, so when I go into specific details, like a sentence in there, I probably couldn't quote something right off the top of my head. Um, other than, you know, the, maybe the park board shall consist of X amount of people um, for so long of a term would be an example of uh, wording in, in the document. But I've, I've read the document several times. I continue to read it. It's a, it's a living document, in my opinion. Um, plus, I'm running for city council, and that is literally, you know, the document that has to guide me in, in, in what I want to do. Um, so yes, I have, I have looked at it many times. Thank you. I say that you pick one more and mm -hmm. uh, Councilman Daniels will answer first, but you get to pick again because he got two yeah. in a row. Okay. You have one back there. Thank you. Uh, I understand that uh, one of you is in office and one of you is not. But if you could, um, one, what is your full-time employment, if you have it? Two, uh, beside, uh, what other boards, commissions and the like, do you serve on or belong to? My uh, first full-time job is I own Empower Lansing. It's a boxing gym on Michigan Avenue, uh, right across from the Green Door. We've been open four and a half years, so I run a small business. Um, and then being on city council, I am on the uh, public safety committee, city operations. I'm on the CAMWA board and the Tri-County Office on Aging board. Um, I go to all my meetings. Um, I'm heavily involved with them. To say that uh, city council is part-time would be absolutely false. Part-time pay, definitely full-time work. Uh, we, we spend, I spend any hour that I'm not uh, at, at, the, at the studio, 
I'm, I'm working on, whether it be what's coming out of the uh, upcoming council meetings, going to the neighborhood meetings, out knocking doors, campaigning now. Um, uh, one of the interesting things I think that uh, I've experienced while being on council is that really the work is done in the committees. And that's why, um, you know, uh, with uh, the urging of the People's Council, we introduced uh, um, an ordinance, uh, a resolution for uh, more transparency because we want to try to broadcast that to the public so that people can actually see what's going on in the committee rooms because that's really where the work gets done. Um, and um, as soon as next week, we're actually going to be start uh, live streaming them on YouTube. So you'll be able to see more at home. One of the issues that we have well, on it very quickly is that while people can see it on YouTube, only 80% of the city has access to broadband internet. So until we actually solve that problem, uh, we don't really have uh, the ability for everybody to be more involved. Uh, so that's also something that I'll be working on. Um, I apologize for the segue. Long story short, yes, I, I, um, I have two full-time jobs on top of being a father, so I have three full-time jobs. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, so I work full-time for the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, I'm the, the computer guru. Um, I service Eaton County, and I totally pointed towards Clinton County because that was my second one. Clinton County and Eaton County. Um, but I also, I also work with people that work with people, um, and that's where a lot of my heart comes from. I'm on, uh, to answer your question directly, I am on Friends of Bancroft uh, board. I am on the Eastside Neighborhood Organization board, um, Foster Your Neighborhood board. Um, I have done advocacy work with the, with the Fledge Foundation, going to the LHC houses. Um, I think I've attended all but one of the People's Council meetings. Um, I, however, am not on the, the council itself. I have been to the meetings to know what's going on. Um, in all of those, those roles, um, I have missed a few ENO meetings because of um, my, my parents' health um, issues. But uh, as far as Friends of Bancroft um, and the, um, the, the People's Council, um, I have been to every one except for the first meeting of that, um, either via Zoom or in person, depending on how they run the meeting. I, I take my commitment seriously. Um, that's why I'm here tonight, even though I don't feel good um, with, with the nasal stuff and, and just feeling like crap with my allergies. But I want to be here tonight because I owe it to you as the voters to come, you know, how I would come to your door. So, you know, I don't have a suit. This is what I come to your door in um, and ask for your vote, which I am doing here tonight. Um, uh, as far as you asked how much time I'm, I'm putting into the community, I punch out at five o'clock. I usually work until one in the morning on community matters. Um, and that's not just knocking doors and asking for votes. That's them pulling me out to their sidewalk and saying, my sidewalk's all messed up which you can see the green paint from someone's house that we just got the sidewalk fixed. And that was because I went to that house, asked for their vote. They said, by the way, my sidewalk is all messed up. Well, now the city's attention is on that sidewalk and it's green painted for repair. I don't know how long the repair is gonna take because they're backed up. Point is, is the ball's rolling. Um, so as far as the community and how much time I'm willing to give, more time than my husband was willing to give up, but he understands that I care deeply about Lansing and I have absolutely proved that I, with no question, love Lansing. Thank you. And with 
that, I'd like to give you each a minute to conclude, and we'll conclude for the evening. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. And any preference who would like to go first? If you'd like to go first. Sure. All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here this evening. Um, uh, it's, it's actually, thank you, Ryan, for this opportunity as well. Um, this was my very first uh, debate-style uh, event like this, so this was, I was nervous, but this was a lot of fun. Um, there's obviously a lot of work to be done. I've already been doing the work. I hope I can continue to do the work. Um, I've never shied away from anything hard. I've always figured out a way, no matter how many times I've told no, to get it done. And, and I figure out ways to work within the system that we have to fix it and make it better. Um, I hope that I can count on your vote. I hope that you'll give me the opportunity. If you have any questions, reach out to me uh, and know that uh, if you want to help Lansing move forward, please vote for me. I appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. Again, uh, thank you everyone for, for sticking around until this late hour and this beautiful darkness. Uh, Brian, thank you for your service to the United thank States. You. Um, I didn't mention that in the beginning. Um, I love Lansing and I love our community. And when I say community, I don't just mean the east side. I mean Northtown, I mean Grossbeck, I mean Fab Acres, I mean Baker Denora, I mean Potter Walsh, I mean Frog Holler. And if you don't know what that is, look at the ENO map, you'll know where it's at. I have been to every neighborhood here. I am working my tail end off to get this neighborhood moving to improve the lives of citizens with every waking moment that I have. People call me because they know I'm gonna answer on that other end. I am reliable and I will be reliable for you on city council. You don't have to wonder if I'm going to not do what you ask. As soon as that question is asked of me, I am already doing it. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. And to kind of conclude, if y'all don't mind, um, I want to get on the end here. November 8th is we can, when we can vote. Please get out and vote. You can still register up until November 8th and vote on that same day. So if you haven't voted yet, please make a plan to vote. All of the candidates, thank you so very much for giving us the opportunity to participate in the democracy. And everybody who came, thank you very much for coming and participating in it. Oh, see you. Good night. Go vote.